We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 98 of the Spurs Up Show, the best Gamecocks podcast on the internet. Got a packed show for you today as we're looking forward to the Gamecocks series in Starkville, South Carolina, taking on Mississippi State, looking to punch their ticket to Hoover. Also, is Will Muschamp on the hot seat? I'll address an article from earlier this week talking about Will Muschamp's job status at South Carolina. Also, some recruiting news as some of the Gamecocks' top targets announced their top five schools. We'll break down those recruits as well. Also have a fantastic jam-packed interview with former Gamecocks defensive end or linebacker, if you will, John Abraham, as we discuss his path to South Carolina, his overall career as he finished fourth in sacks in his career. Also, a historic NFL career as he played 14 seasons in the league. We'll break all that down in its entirety. Also, this is a podcast presented to you by our friends over at SeatGeek. SeatGeek, the best ticket-buying app by far, the only ticket-buying app I use. Please be sure to go download SeatGeek. Use the promo code SPURSUP to save $10 off your first purchase. Doesn't matter what you're getting tickets to. Doesn't even have to be sports. It can be uh, concerts, comedy club events, you name it. Anything and everything you need tickets to, especially with South Carolina Gamecocks events. Please be sure, again, use our friends at SeatGeek. Go download that SeatGeek app. Save $10 off your first purchase when you use the promo code SPURSUP. They've actually got a ticket rating system where they actually rate the tickets for you. So you know, you know if you're getting a really, really good deal. Maybe you're getting ripped off. Maybe you're paying too much. You know exactly what you're getting before you click the buy button. It's really that simple. Again, download SeatGeek. Use that promo code SPURSUP. That's S-P-U-R-S-U-P to save $10 off your first purchase. All right, let's get into it. I'm Chris Phillips, your host of the Spurs Up Show, as always, coming to you. Very, very excited. i got a jam-packed show, including a fantastic interview, like I mentioned earlier, with John Abraham that I'm going to get to a little bit later. But first, let's start in Stark Vegas. Gamecocks travel to Mississippi State to take on the Bulldogs in the three-game series, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, in what proves to be a very, very important series for South Carolina Gamecocks, looking to punch their ticket to Hoover. Going to need some help from the Alabama Crimson Tide or from the Georgia Bulldogs, if you will. South Carolina, though. What really needs to happen for the Gamecocks this weekend? Again, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, South Carolina rolling out there with the same weekend rotation they've had the past couple of weekends. Cam Tringali will get the ball on Thursday night. Reed Morgan on Friday, and then Saturday uh, is a TBA. You know, it's funny. We ran the poll earlier. How will South Carolina baseball obviously fare this weekend? Most people predicting Mississippi State either win two of three or sweep, sweep this weekend. 
And I pose the question here, is it even realistic to think that South Carolina could go into Starkville and win two of three? Um, you know, I know South Carolina coming off their first SEC series win of the year against Kentucky, but overall – I, I do think it's just going to be too much, too tall of a task to ask the Gamecocks to go into Starkville and take two of three from Mississippi State. Listen, you're facing a team in Mississippi State overall that's 43-10. and 10. They're 30-4 and four at home. We all heard, heard very, very much about the dude, the duty noble, the new dude, if you will. It's a fantastic venue. Mississippi State draws in, I believe it's like 10,000-plus every home game. They're 18-9 and nine in the SEC overall. I mean, listen, this is one of the best teams in the country. This is a team vying for Omaha without a doubt. Um, I think the Gamecocks are up for a major challenge. I think, honestly, winning one out of three games this weekend would be a fantastic result for South Carolina, and you have to be almost happy with that if you are a South Carolina fan. If Mississippi State comes into this one hitting, they're hitting 317 as a team, obviously led by Jake Mangum, who I believe earlier this season set the SEC, the all-time SEC hits record. Um, he's hitting 392 on the season, had 37 RBIs, one home run. Justin Foskey is another big guy for them. 13 homers and 53 RBIs to go along with a 341 batting average. Just such a balanced, dominant lineup. I mean, you've got guys six home runs, six home runs, nine home runs, six home runs, five home runs. So it's a lot of production from a lot of different guys for this Mississippi State lineup. And I think South Carolina pitching is going to have a very, very tough time this weekend, especially with the lack of depth. I mean, listen, we saw some good things on Tuesday night against USC Upstate. Great to see Parker Coyne eat up some innings for South Carolina. I thought guys came in relief and threw pretty well, but it's going to be a different beast this weekend. And I just find it very hard to believe that, uh, you know, I like I like what I've seen out of Cam Trangali. I like what, what he has done for South Carolina, what he's provided. But, again, just a completely different animal, completely different beast. And Mark Kingston has talked early in this season that, you know, to win these type of games and beat these type of teams, you need big-time guys, big-time SEC guys on the mound. And I don't think South Carolina, they, they just simply don't have those guys right now. Um, what really, <clears throat> again, what needs to happen for South Carolina, you've got to win one of three. You've, you've got to find a way to scratch and claw and win one of three, and you've got to pray and hope that Georgia can sweep the Alabama Crimson Tide in Athens this week. And obviously, Gamecocks, as of right now, if the season were to end today, Alabama is in, South Carolina is out, Alabama holding the tiebreaker over South Carolina because they won two of three in Tuscaloosa. You know, I think overall, again, it is possible that South Carolina could win one of three. Obviously, you're – you're hanging on a lot. <laughs> You're hanging on a lot just because, you know, in a weekend series, I mean, teams teams run into wins. You know what I mean? Teams run into wins. I think Alabama could take one of three from Georgia. So, you know, Gamecock's going to need to help themselves, if you will, and get some help uh, from the Georgia Bulldogs overall. You know, if I had to t a prediction, I think South Carolina will scratch and claw and win one of three games. I, I don't know. I think just coming off that two – that uh, Kentucky series where they win two of three, finally get the monkey off their back, I think you'll, I think you'll see a team – maybe play with a little bit more confidence this weekend, play a little more loose. And I think that will lead to a win. However, I'm going to predict, I just, I, I'm not going to predict them going to Hoover. I think that Alabama will be able to scratch one out against Georgia as well. And South Carolina will be on the outside, you know, left on the outside looking in. I just, you know, that's not a very bold prediction, I guess, if you will, but overall just need to see it happen. It's going to be a very, very interesting weekend. There's going to be a lot of drama with it as well, because South Carolina, obviously, you know, you want to get to Hoover and get your guys that experience, if nothing else. Get these young guys that experience in that postseason SEC tournament-type platform. A lot, of, a lot of these young guys, obviously, on South Carolina's roster haven't experienced that yet. So I think getting to Hoover, you know, is a big deal for this team. Um, but overall, again, you take a look at Mississippi State. I didn't even talk about their pitching right now. They're, they have a 3.43 team ERA. Um, they're big three starters. 
Ethan Small, who's seven and one overall with a 1.73 ERA. JT Ginn, or Jen, however you say his last name, he's eight and three with a 3.13 ERA. And then Peyton Plumley, five and three with a 3.68 ERA. I mean, it's just you know this Mississippi State team is stacked. They're everything that South Carolina is not, as far as they have three established starters. They have a fantastic balanced lineup that features power and speed. Um, and South Carolina simply does not have that right now. So I think it certainly will be a struggle. However, I, I, like I said, I think I think the Gamecocks will be able to pull out one game, and I think we're going to learn a lot about this team this weekend in regards to how are they able to carry momentum from winning a series at home to going into a hostile environment that's Mississippi State. Because I think this will be the biggest test of the season as far as going on the road, as far as the pressure associated with the series. And we're going to kind of find out a lot about these guys. And, you know, a lot of these guys that are – you know, necessarily true freshman at this point in the season, you're not a true freshman anymore. These guys have got to step up and play well. Um, all right, let's move into some football talk. I, I know moving along quick, you know, with the baseball stuff, but something I've been wanting to get to all week, thought about doing the, you know, a, an episode of the Daily Crow on it, but figured I'd just bring it to bring it to the attention on the podcast is, you know, something that I think fans, college football fans in general like to talk about, and obviously Will Muschamp is no exception. Is Will Muschamp on the hot seat going into the 2019 season? Paul Feinbaum sort of got the got the pot stirred, if you will, got it going a little bit earlier this week when I think he basically said that Will Muschamp, you know, he thought should be on the hot seat, but the fact that he's at South Carolina, he's not. Um, and it basically just kind of got the conversation going about is Will Muschamp on the hot seat and people giving their opinions. I, I just want to make this clear. If you think that Will Muschamp is on the hot seat or should be on the hot seat, you are an idiot. And, you know, there's really no other way to put it, in my opinion. I mean, listen, look at what Will Muschamp has done over his first three seasons. And was I a huge, huge, huge fan of the hire? I don't think anybody really was. I'm not sure many people were. But, listen, overall, what you wanted when Steve Spurrier left was a guy that would come in, recruit at a high level, bust his ass on the recruiting trail, and get this thing back going in the right direction, getting elite talent in Columbia. He has the best winning percentage over his first three seasons. He's got a nine-win season under his belt. He's got an Outback Bowl win. South Carolina has made a bowl game all three seasons he's been in Columbia. He's recruiting at a high level. He has the brand-new operations facility. Even when you just take a look at the statistics as far as wins are concerned, though, three straight bowl appearances, a nine-win season, an Outback Bowl victory. At what point in the history of the University of South Carolina football program has that gotten a head coach fired from the University of South Carolina? I'll wait. Because it hasn't. I, and I think it's just unrealistic, un, un, unreasonable to think that Will Muschamp should be under some serious, you know, hot seat, if you will, hot seat talk going into this 2019 season. Again, this is a big year for Will Muschamp. And I think every year is big because you need to see progress. You're bringing in these, in these good players. You've got this facility. <clears throat> but you've got to do it on the field. You can't continue to just keep losing to ranked teams. You can't continue to lose games to teams you shouldn't, like Kentucky, for example. So this is a huge year, obviously, for South Carolina. But overall, is Will Muschamp on the hot seat? Absolutely not. What I would ask the fans that would say that they think he should be or that he is, and, and I feel like it's so funny. I ask people this question, and they never really have a good answer for me. But what is it that you believe that Will Muschamp is not doing that he should be doing? Like, it, what is the one thing that – or maybe if there's a couple of things that you think that Will Muschamp – this X, Y, Z is why he's not a good football coach for South Carolina. Like, what is it What is it that he's not doing that he should be? Because, again, in my opinion, I think he's doing everything right. He checks all the boxes. Again, there have been bad losses, no doubt. There have been bad losses for South Carolina over his first three years. But overall, 
They've made a bowl game every year. You've seen progression. You've seen, you know, he was willing to fire Kurt Roper after 2017. He's not staying stagnant in his ways and, you know, not sticking with what's not working. I mean, he, he, they're bringing in top elite level talent. I think this is going to be the best South Carolina defense you've seen since 2013. I, I really, truly believe that. And I think this is going to be the first time we're really going to see Will Muschamp have his kind of defense and his dudes and, South Carolina really have some big-time athletes on that side of the football. So nobody can really answer that question for me, but what is it that Will Muschamp should be doing that he's not? I think the Will Muschamp on the hot seat talk thing is absolutely absurd. I think it's ridiculous. And, again, I know there are some people that just hate Will Muschamp to do it. They They just do. They're just going to dislike him no matter what until South Carolina either beats Clemson and Georgia, wins a title, Whatever it is, whatever in their mind would make would flip the switch for him. But I just think it's silly. I mean, anyone that knows sports, knows college football, knows college athletics, pro sports even, you don't get anywhere by flipping coaches every three years, every three to four years. It just doesn't happen. You're not – the program is going to go nowhere if you continue to do that. Listen, I'm a guy where I truly believe – and I don't want people to think that I'm, hey, Will Muschamp should – you know, he's completely above being fired or whatever – like, Listen, it's a year-by-year thing. I think Will Muschamp, this Will Muschamp era is going to play itself out. And what I mean by that is I think the it's going to be very clear or apparent, in my opinion, if he's the right guy for the job or not. I've always told people when they ask me about, you know, what do you think about Will Muschamp? How long should he get? I really, truly believe that Will Muschamp should get the Ryan Holinsky, Luke Doty era, if you will, at least the first couple of years of that. Because if he can't win the SEC East or if he can't win of any, anything of significance with, with these blue-chip quarterbacks that are coming in and finally getting his guys on defense, I don't think he's the right guy. I don't think he's util, utilizing the talent that he has. Because I think over the next three or four years, Will Muschamp is going to have a roster good enough to compete with Georgia, with Florida, with Clemson, with anybody. I think they're going to have those type of players. But it, it, the coaching is still a thing in college football. It's getting the most out of those players. And I think – one of the biggest things for Will Muschamp right now is definitely staying out of his assistant's way. I think he's got two of the best assistants in the country in T. Rob on defense and Brian McClendon on offense. I really do. I think if I think that's something Will Muschamp has gotten better at since he was at Florida, being more of a CEO. It's something that you know a lot of coaches struggle with. A lot of a lot of uh, assistant coaches struggle with you know being sort of hands off. You being more of a CEO and less of hands on. If you're letting your assistants kind of do their thing. I think we've seen that with you know Will Muschamp doesn't quite blow up on the sidelines anymore. He's not a guy that's all over the place with the YouTube videos and the crazy videos of him losing his shit on the sidelines. So I think he's gotten better at that as well. I just think this Will Muschamp era at South Carolina is going to play itself out. And I agree with fans 100%. There should be pressure going into 2019 in the sense that, you know, people can talk about this crazy hard schedule all they want. And listen, the schedule's hard. It's the toughest schedule in the country. But South Carolina fans are not going to be okay with a 6-6 six and six season in which you don't beat anybody of significance and you probably lose a game you should win, and, but you beat all the teams you should beat in, if you, in, in a sense. Like last season, for example. That's pretty much what happened last season. South Carolina did not have a single win where it felt like it was a good win. I mean, the best win of the season, you would probably argue, was Missouri at home, and Michael Skarnickia started that football game. So there's going to have to come a point where South Carolina is going to not only have to compete with the big boys, make those games tight, make them close, make those guys sweat, 
but they're going to have to break through and win one of those games. I'm not saying beating Clemson. I'm not saying beating Bama. I'm not saying beating Georgia. But the Floridas, the Texas A&Ms, God forbid the Kentuckys, the Tennessees, those are games that have to be won. Those are games. And and then the Clemson, Georgia, Bama's breaking through in a sense of keeping those games close and possibly winning one of those. That That's really what's going to show you progress in this program. You, I, I relate it back to – you knew South Carolina's program was on the rise. 2009, South Carolina upsets the fourth-ranked team in the country in Ole Miss. But after that, 2010, Gamecocks host Alabama in Columbia and beat the Crimson Tide. That was a program changer, in my opinion. That game changed the perception of South Carolina football. That game, South Carolina broke through that day. It, it changed the program, and we saw that for the next three years. When is Will Muschamp and his staff and his program going to get that program-changing win? That's the biggest question mark, in my opinion. Um, so, like I said, that's going to play itself out. But I, I'm not willing to sit here and say Will Muschamp should be on the hot seat and be fired, especially when we've only seen him be the head coach during the Jake Bentley era. I mean, I'm not trying to pile it all on Jake Bentley because Will Muschamp is the head coach. And at the end of the day, all of the good and all of the bad falls on his desk. It really does. He is the boss. He is the CEO of this thing. But I'm just willing to give him more time. I, I'm, I'm willing to give him – I, I want to see the performance of this program post-Jake Bentley era. I, I really, really do. And like I said, I love what Will Muschamp's doing in recruiting. I, I love his assistance. I, again, I think if he can let Brian McClendon work on the offensive side of the ball, I think South Carolina is going to be just fine on offense. And I think – that honestly, for the first time, like I said, since 2013, South Carolina's got some real, some real big-time athletes on the defensive side of the ball. I really do. I mean, you look at the guys, you look at the guys they brought in, Zach Pickens, Joseph Anderson, Rodriguez Fitton. You look at the guys they already had, J.C. Horn, Israel Mokwamu, R.J. Roderick, Jamil Cook, Cam Smith, John Dixon, Shiloh Sanders. Um, you know, the list goes on and on. Javon Kinlaw, D.J. Wanham. Sherrod Green, you know, T.J. Brunson, uh, Ernest Jones. I mean, there are, there are dudes on that defensive side of the ball, finally, for what feels like the first time in forever for South Carolina. I'm extremely excited about the defense in 2019, if you couldn't tell. So, <clears throat> again, the whole hot seat talk, I know it's the offseason. People are trying to create stories, create headlines, stuff like that, but – I just had to address it because I just I genuinely mean this. If you think Will Muschamp should be on the hot seat, like if you really think he should be fired after the 2019 season or, hell, even now, you're an idiot. You're just an idiot. There's no other way to put it. You are an idiot and you don't understand football. You really don't. It makes no sense. It makes absolutely no sense. Let this thing play out. I promise you the Will Muschamp era – it's going to be very, very apparent whether he's the guy to lead this program to Atlanta or not, or to bring this program back to where it was under Steve Spurrier. It's going to be very, very apparent. But after three years, you can make that judgment call. I just, I don't see it. I think people underestimate how long it takes to get his recruiting classes in there, build this thing up, and, and get it rolling. Um, so, yeah. So, let's move into some recruiting. We're talking recruiting. Some recruiting news came out over the week. Miles Murphy and Rico Powers Jr., two big-time uh, recruits for South Carolina announcing their top five. Gamecocks fall in both. Um, everything I'm hearing, Gamecocks in pretty good standing with both guys, especially Miles Murphy, um, high school teammate of Michael Wyman. So definitely a big-time um, big advantage for the Gamecocks there as well. I, you know, if I had to guess right now, I would expect Miles Murphy to be a Gamecock, Rico Powers Jr. 
not so much as sure, if you will, but overall, I mean, again, it's just great to see South Carolina making, making waves on the recruiting landscape, if you will. Um, two guys that are very capable, especially Miles Murphy continuing. South Carolina just continuing to do everything it can to build up that defensive line. Miles Murphy would be a huge get for South Carolina. And then Rico Powers Jr., a four-star wide receiver, 2020 kid. Um, you know, would love to see him come to Columbia as well. I mean, because overall, South Carolina needs to continue to build on the outside, get as many playmakers as they can, and, you know, continue, <clears throat> continue to build on the offensive side of the ball. I mean, again, it's just so pivotal that, you know, and I think the, one of the biggest advantages for South Carolina recruiting guys like this is because of is their stacked quarterback room. Ryan Holinsky, to carry on Joyner, Luke Doty, you know, the, getting these guys on campus and in there, that's a big deal. I mean, wide receivers and playmakers, they want to play for guys that can get them the football. So I think it's a huge, huge advantage for South Carolina right now. Um, all right, let's get into, get into your listener questions. Got a ton of good ones. J.K. Gill, 34, asks, do you think you save Reed or Cam for game three, trying to make sure you get one win? Um, well, I can tell you they're not doing that because Cam's going on Thursday, Reed Friday, and then TVA Sunday. It's not a terrible idea. I, I mean, listen, I don't think I don't think there's any bad ideas right now with the South Carolina baseball team because you really roll the dice and see what you can do. I, I mean, I, I do agree with you in the sense I think South Carolina should really throw the kitchen sink. I mean, if they, you know, if you get if you get a lead in game one, you've got to throw the kitchen sink out there and just try to get that game one win because you re, you have to realize you may only get one win all weekend. I just I really really believe that. I think you have to. Um, I think you have to do that. He actually follows it up, J.K. Gill, 34 again, or save both of them for game three. So they're definitely not doing that. But, I, I again, I like where your head's at. I, I really do. I think you need to – you know, there is – I've, you guys have heard me say before with baseball, I really truly believe there's no tomorrow without today. You don't worry about tomorrow. Do everything you can to win today. And I truly believe that's how South Carolina should be approaching this weekend. Um, <clears throat> Timmy Clark, eleven seventeen. Who is better, on Joyner or Ryan Holinsky? I mean, I'm going to say Ryan Holinsky right now. I simply believe he's just a better pass for the football. Um, you know, on Joyner obviously can do some really, really good things with his legs. Uh, I think he's a dynamic playmaker. I think you heard uh, Will Muschamp a couple of days ago talk about they are going to get him on the field in some capacity. I think they know they have to get him on the field. I think South Carolina needs to be more creative in the red zone. You know, obviously that was a huge, huge area um, – that South Carolina struggled in. Jake Bentley, a lot of interceptions in the red zone. I think they can really use to carry on joining the red zone, get creative down there, and use his skill set in some way, shape, or form. But I think overall, who is the better player at the quarterback position? I, I truly think it's Ryan Linsky, without a doubt. Um, zero, Rue, R-U-W-W-W. Uh, why have we only won one SEC series all year? I'm not sure if you're just tuning in, but – a lot of injuries with the pitching staff, uh, a very depleted pitching staff, and a very, very, very inconsistent lineup. And I, I really just think for this season, too, what kind of happened is, you know, momentum goes both ways, right? Positive and negative momentum. And I, once you get the ball rolling with the negative momentum, it can snowball on you, and it becomes very mental. And I think that's what happened for this team. It became very, very mental. I think this team is better than that. Um, I don't think the South Carolina team is as bad as they've shown this season. But it certainly, in my opinion, got to the point where it was very, very mental for this Gamecocks baseball team. And you could see that. I mean, you could see that week in, week out. Um, John underscore Wilgus underscore IV. Jordan Birch, Desmond Evans, and Tank Bigsby. Thoughts? Any other recruits on your radar? So, yeah, all big ones, obviously. 
you know, I, I really don't know about Jordan Birch. He, he's a kid you've got to get, though, out of your backyard. I know there's been people speculating where he's going. I think Jordan Birch is one that it, it needs to be a huge, huge primary target for South Carolina. I think Desmond Evans would be more of a nice get. I don't expect South Carolina to get him. I, I will say Tank Bigsby, the running back. I, I'll tell you guys from um, – you know, from a couple of people I've talked to, from one of my main sources that I talk to a lot about South Carolina athletics, um, I'm hearing a lot of positive things about Tank Bigsby. I'll just say that. I'm hearing a lot of positive things. Gamecocks are in really, really good standing um, with Tank Bigsby overall. And overall, any other recruits on your radar? Um, at the moment, I think Miles Murphy obviously is definitely one. I think Miles Murphy, South Carolina, has to feel really, really good where they stand with that kid. Um, but overall, right now, I would say no. Uh, I, you know, I'll be completely honest with you. I talked to you guys about this before. I focus a lot more heavily on recruiting as we get closer to it. Uh, I just, you know, so much can change in recruiting. These kids flip their decisions and change their minds every every week, it seems. So, um, but I think South Carolina, I will say this as far as recruiting is concerned, I think South Carolina is setting themselves up for another very, very solid class. I mean, without a doubt. I, I think the Gamecocks – um, need to land some of these playmakers out at wide receiver. I think that's a huge priority for them. Obviously, getting a running back, getting Tank Bigsby is a huge, huge priority for them. Um, and continue to build on the line of scrimmage, both offensively and defensively, I think is a huge priority for them as well. Um, and also the linebacker position, I would say, I think needs to be a huge priority as well. But I think Gamecocks, I think Will Muschamp and company, I think they're setting themselves up to have another very, very solid class for South Carolina. Um, okay, appreciate the listener questions, guys. Let's get into this interview. It's a fantastic interview. I mean, just jam-packed with so much stuff. We're talking about a guy, again, that was second overall – or, excuse me, fourth overall in South Carolina history in sacks, played from 1996 to 1999 for the Gamecocks, and had a 14-year NFL career. You talk about the longevity of this guy. Had 16 and a half sacks in 2008 for the Atlanta Falcons. Just a phenomenal NFL career, John Abraham. Uh, before we get into the interview, it's an interview brought to you again by our friends over at SeatGeek. If you haven't done so, please go download the SeatGeek app. Use that promo code SPURSUP to save $10 off your first purchase. Whether you need tickets to any South Carolina Gamecock sporting events, NFL, NFL, NHL, NBA, it doesn't have to be sports either. Whether you're going to a concert, comedy club event, you name it, anything that you need tickets to, SeatGeek has got them. They actually rate the tickets for you based on a ticket rating system so you know what type of deal you're getting, whether you're getting a really, really good deal or you're paying a little bit too much. You know everything that you need to know before you click that buy button. It's really that simple. So, again, go download SeatGeek. Use that promo code SPURSUP and save $10 off your first purchase. All right, enjoy this interview with former Gamecocks outside linebacker John Abraham. All right, joining us today on the Spurs Up show is a man from Timminsville, South Carolina, that played his high school football at Lamar High School. He played for the South Carolina Gamecocks from 1996 to 1999 before take, being taken in the first round of the 2000 NFL Draft. Gamecock fans know him very well as he ranks fourth all-time with sacks with 23-and-a-half at South Carolina and is 12th all-time in NFL history with 133-and-a-half sacks to his credit. I'm very pleased to welcome to the show John Abraham. John, appreciate you taking the time, man. It's a pleasure to have you on. Uh, thank you for having me. Absolutely. So let's kind of go back to the beginning, John, for you, your uh, your high school career, if you will, because you had a very interesting – I was reading up on you. You had a very interesting beginning of your career in regards to, you know, you only played one year of high school football. You're from, you went to Lamar High School, um, focused on other sports, and really weren't even sure you were going to be playing college football. You played your senior year of high school and then started to get recruited. Just kind of talk about, you know, your football career, how it started and what led you to become a Gamecock. 
Well, when I actually, uh, when I went, uh, I, I played football um, all as a kid, as we always did. I think everyone played football as a kid, even the girls. Uh, but uh, I think I really, my first time trying to play football uh, organized was eighth grade. You know, um, I played quarterback, receiver, and defensive end. And like pretty much every other position you could play back in the day. You know, I was number 88. But then um, the off season, I um, actually had uh, a, I was planning on playing basketball, but that was kind of my first love. And, you know, football was fun, but, you know, I really uh, felt like I was going to be a basketball player because I was already 6'4 and everything. So my first year of trying to play uh, organized basketball, I actually sprained my ankle before the season start. I actually um, had a hairline fracture, and my mom had to come get me to school, so she told me not to play football no more. Mm-hmm. So I just pretty much um, focused my uh, stuff on other things to do, like basketball, track, and um, pretty much band. Okay. So, yeah, I know your final year of high school, obviously you jumped big back into football. You were being recruited lightly. I know South Carolina was one of the uh, the first couple of schools to reach out to you, and I know Brad Lawing was a big figure in that. Just kind of talk about what uh, what the recruiting process was like for you and why you chose to come to South Carolina. It was uh, actually funny to me because uh, most of the thing I was getting recruited from basketball. I knew nothing about football. I knew how to play, but I knew nothing about it. I knew nothing about what schools were good, what schools were football schools, what schools were bad. I just knew that um, I wanted to stay somewhere in the state and somewhere close to home. I think my mom did most of the recruiting for me. She didn't really know about football, but she just had schools and coaches she liked, people she liked. Um, my mom was why I went to University of South Carolina. Um, she was the main reason because uh, – and uh, I don't like to tell a lot of people that I was going to go to Clemson simply because I was used to playing a lot of different sports. Um, you know, I was used to being, you know, and they, even if they were going to let me play or not, they were going to give me the opportunity to play uh, football, basketball, and track. So, you know, if I miss that one, I have a chance to play another one. But my mom was like, you go there? Uh, I would never come see you. So, yeah, I was like, well, you know, it was like, okay. You know, I was like, well, you know, I still play football. I, was, I, was, I could be close to home and stuff like that. So, uh all my gang cops keep playing, uh, I guess, Clemson people also. Uh, the, the reason why I pretty much chose up because my mom. You know, I was a mom before, and uh, she went to Clemson home. I mean, like, I don't, I don't hate Clemson. I don't hate South Carolina State. I don't hate no team. I mean, except when we play each other. So a lot of people, you know, they, they're diehard fans like that, and I understand why. But, you know, I just like to see how uh, the state of South Carolina do good. I mean, I'm a gang cop today. day I fly. Don't get it twisted. I, I would never tell somebody to go to Clemson over us now, but, you know. But, you know, I had to get there before I had to realize, you know, I, I chose the right school for me. No doubt. And you talked about your mom, obviously, was very influential in your recruitment. Obviously, the head coach of the Gamecocks at the time, um, Brad Scott. Just kind of talk about once you got on campus, your relationship. Again, I know Brad Lawing was very instrumental as well. Really, really great defensive line coach. But talk about just sort of your uh, – I guess your mom's relationship with Brad Scott, because I'm sure she she had to feel very comfortable with him as well. You staying close to home, but playing for Brad Scott. And what was your relationship like with him as well? Well, I can honestly say the honeymoon was over. <laughs> and I think yeah, it wasn't like, you know, because it was kind of like they got me. It was it. I mean, I'm, I ain't trying to be rude or nothing. But you know, they had other people recruiting, other people that really needed help. I didn't really need help. I had enough backing at home. I had enough uh, personal stuff. I can stuff myself. So we didn't really, they ain't really talked to me a lot because I wasn't really a troublemaker. You know, there was a lot of guys that they had to worry about, you know, a lot of people leaving and stuff like that. I talked to Brad when I wanted to, but I didn't really like, uh, I guess, you know, I could call my mom if I needed help. So, you know, like me and Brad, I haven't really talked to either one of them after. I ain't talked to Brad since, well, pretty much he left the team. And I talked to maybe Lauren 
not that much either. You know, not not knocking them at all, but you know they, are, they actually have coaches they have to meet new guys every year. So you know, but I can't say Rick, Rick Peacher is pretty much uh, my main guy I talk to. He was my D line coach for the three years mm-hmm. I was there. He was like he coached like Warren Sapp. He coached a lot of guys in the NFL now. He, he's a great coach, but he did a good job coaching me. Um, Brad Long was the guy who got me there, but um, Rick Peacher was the guy who uh, made me pro I am today. He wanted to talk me how to really play football and learn schemes and um, the things. You know, not knock on Brad Long. He's the one who recruited me, but Rick Peacher was the one who made me the football player I am today. No doubt. So you got on campus, obviously, fall of 96, and you start as a true freshman, really played in all you know all 11 games for South Carolina. Uh, just 12 tackles, but four sacks on the year. Talk about what, what do you think you would uh, – you know, attribute your fast start to as a freshman? Uh, being fast. I was just faster than everybody else. And also just the way the numbers, um, having that we had nobody else to play position at the time, I had to. Because I, I was sure I was going to get um, red shirt because I was underweight. I might have was like 205, 210. And um, I wasn't planning on playing. But we had two good freshmen, me and Matt Marsters. He also was a teammate of mine. He played also. He was a great but he, he came in like 245, you know, just like the prototype because then they, maybe they can bulk him up. See, I think now that um, it's a different day and time. So, you know, I, I should have been an outside linebacker we were in a 4-3. Um, with my speed and agility, it was kind of tough, though. But, you know, we wanted to be a 4-3 defense. So, you know, I think Matt could have been a good outside linebacker and I could have been also. But in our um, scheme of things, they was planning on by the time we leave, we'll be 250 or something like that. But neither one of me and Matt ever got 250 when we played. I think I got up to 230, maybe 235 at most. But uh, it was just a scheme of defense. We was in a 4-3. But, you know, looking back now, I, I'm pretty sure we had a defense uh, when me and Matt got there. We could have had a pretty good um, outside linebacker court. He could have been like a – he could have been like a, a Clay Matthews, and I could have been like a, a almost like a Von Miller type player. We could have been, but you know, our defense was a four three, so we had to stick to that. The, with the personnel we had, uh, me and Matt had to uh, fit into the personnel, and we had uh, we didn't, I ain't saying we really had a lot of skills, but we had the potential, and we had the speed, and we had the heart to want to play at a young age. No doubt. So looking back on that 96 season, it's funny. Obviously, from most of those games in the you know, mid-late 90s, whatever, the TV coverage isn't, wasn't like it is now. A lot of your highlights uh, from South Carolina, you know, it's obviously kind of hard to find some. One that popped up immediately was your sack at Clemson, your, you know, the, your, your one win over Clemson while you were at South Carolina. You guys beat those guys 34-31 to 31 in Death Valley. Um, you, you talked about your guy, again, that you pull for the state, and obviously your game caught through and through, but – when did it click for you, I guess, as a player, just how big of a game the South Carolina Clemson rivalry was? Uh, I knew it. I knew it like when we got there. Uh, but when I played in the game, it, it like time the lights came on over the rap. I mean, it was like uh, when I saw because I played with these guys every game. I mean, the guys that been there, you know, I had scenes in front of me, but that game was so emotional. And I mean, every game was emotional. But when, that, when we got that game, we got in the locker room. Guys were crying because they knew, first of all, it was a lot of our guys, like, either going to the playoffs or not. Well, not the playoffs at the time, going to a bowl game or not. So this is going to be their last game or they're going to another game. So we had to have that win. But I just saw the uh, passion that these guys had at that game. Guys were crying in the locker room. They was crying and thing. And that game, because, uh, like, it simplifies a lot, especially when the season when you're trying to go to a bowl game and, and then it's your rivals. You know, a lot of people play their rivals in the middle of the season when you used to play Clemson at the end of the year. So it's going to be a big game regardless because you want to go out with a win, first of all, and it's a good recruiting thing. You know, you know like the reason I think Clemson get a lot of our recruits now and not knocking South Carolina, like we haven't won a lot of the last game against them. 
So when it comes to you trying to recruit a player or something like that, especially an in-state player or something like that, you want to be able to beat the two big teams and our big teams us and them. So I think that's how we lose a, a lot of players sometimes just to Clemson because right now they have they have the national championships. But I think once we start beating, we beat Clemson one time. Like I, I thought we had them this year. We had a good thing in the second half. We kind of rolled off. But, you know, like small things like that going to improve. But that game is so big for us. And it's more than just Clemson and Carolina. It's the last game of the year. It tells whether we go this kind of game. For us now, it's like knocking off the champions. So for us, it's really big now, you know, having a you know, most times us it was like knocking people out of the situation. You know, so for us, it's, it's just going recruitment. It goes into, you know, first of all, like a year of bragging. It goes into uh, what school you might go to if you can talk to your friends. You know, it, it goes into a lot of things. It goes, so it goes into more than that. What kind of bowl you'll be in? So being the last game and being the, it's an in-state rival, it goes into more than just being Carolina Clemson. It goes into what school that a lot of kids would choose to go to. No doubt. So, obviously, your numbers, John, they improved year after year at South Carolina, but I want to kind of go back and talk about maybe some of your former teammates. Obviously, um, South Carolina had some very capable guys on offense. Now, it's funny, I was thinking that 96 season, I believe that was the year you guys smacked around Georgia pretty good at Williams-Brice. Deuce Staley had a big day that day. I know Anthony Wright was a quarterback that, obviously, along with you, had a very, very successful NFL career. How much better do you think you got due to the fact you were facing those type of guys in practice every day? Well, I, was, I can tell you about Deuce. Um, Deuce got into some trouble. My, uh, I can tell you about Deuce and A1. Since you talk about Anthony Wright and those guys, um, Deuce got into trouble. So I, I don't know if you know what two days is, but you have to wake up at like six o'clock, five o'clock mm-hmm. in the morning to mattress, which lasts about an hour and a half, two hours straight. So Deuce used to come do mat drills by himself before. The, I mean, before then he's coming to another. So just like, well, he'd be up like three in the morning doing mat drills by himself just so he can prove that he wanted to play. Then he'd do mat drills with us. Then he had to do a full, like, practice or whatever. This is all awesome. So when I saw him doing that, 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 made, that showed me what kind of guy he was and the kind of influence he had as a leader. Like, he didn't talk a lot in school and stuff like that. I mean, he had friends and everything like that. You know, me trying to speak to him was just like, you can't speak to Deuce. Deuce, that's Deuce. Because, you know, he had the big uh, two up there. He used to walk, he like, Deuce. Like, every, he used to walk around campus. It was just like, and everybody was in awe because he was from airport high school. So, but for me, watching him, just how he worked. I mean, he didn't care about, like, and he was he was a workout beast. I mean, you know, like, he was just a workout beast. He, he wanted perfection and he wanted to be great. And, he, and, and like, NFL, I think NFL more for him was just a way to take care of his family. If you know about his mom and his family, like, his brother passed away and a lot of different things in his family that people don't know about. But for more of him was getting out of the place he was and, like, picking people up. So that's that kind of how football was for me. So when I watched Deuce, because, you know, a lot of people want the money and the fame. Deuce weren't really about the money and the fame. He want, he really wanted to get his family in a better position and put his people in a better position. So that's why I watched Deuce. So for me, you know, that's why Deuce always was, like, even to the day, I still look up Deuce. You know, he's he doing a hell of a job at Philadelphia. And I still look up Deuce. No doubt. So, like I mentioned, your numbers improved, you know, obviously from your freshman, sophomore, junior, you were all SEC, tons of accolades for you, but you go from four sacks in 96 to six and a half in 97 to seven in 98. What overall for you would you say was the biggest areas of improvement in your game, your, your things that you were working on to get better at that you think showed up on the field? I started doing stuff myself. <laughs> I thought I stopped listening to the coaches sometimes because I knew I could do certain plays. Uh, 
it was, it was, and, and not, not knocking them though. But you know, Michael, like, uh, I think, I think we taught each other. He was like, well, John, you know, you're not gonna be able to do that. And then they saw like, well, he can do that. You know, I started doing certain things like inside moves and still getting to the, like, cause a lot of times they wanted me to stay outside. But I knew I was fast enough. If somebody tried to reach and tackle me, I knew I could go inside and still get back up the field quick enough that the reach, it I still could have kept contained. So I started learning myself and I started learning like how to move my hands more. I started learning how to dip the corner. I started learning because I got tired of getting beat up so much in practice because, you know, a lot of times we had a lot of running plays and stuff. So I just hit, 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 hit. And I said, if I'm fast enough, why don't I just run around? And I can make, and I had makeup speed, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So even if I outran them, I can still keep running. So I learned, I learned myself. And I try not to. I'm not not trying to diss my coach. My coach helped me a lot, so that's why that's one thing I don't want people to think. But I had sometimes you got to prove your coach that you can do it and still get the job. Because uh, I get the job done. My coach, uh, like Coach Peach, used to always tell me, he's like, John, if you mess up, make sure you get to play though. I don't care if you mess up. Now if you mess up, just mess up, mess up at 100. percent I said, okay, that's all he had to tell me because I know I'm gonna do this wrong, but I'm trying. To, I'm still gonna try to make the play. So that's a good thing. So I learned how to do stuff. And then when I, as I got older, I started making it click, making it click, making it click, making it click. So it became easy. I started reading tackles. I started, just, you know, just reading stuff. But also, I had a lot of good people around me. Um, I'm, if I, I'm going to circle back to Anthony Wright, though, because mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I forgot about A1. Mm-hmm. I, had, I had Arturo Freeman and I had Ray Green also. Older guys. So I, I, I don't know if you remember like, Arturo Freeman and Ray Green. Mm-hmm. I, they, were, they were two good friends of mine, too. Um, I saw Arturo suffer from getting hurt. I saw Ray being a good, you know, certain kind of cornerback, being out of position sometimes. And I, I watched those guys still pursue and still want to be challenged. And as A1, he was an offensive player, but, you know, coming from North Carolina, coming from another state and trying to, like, run a South Carolina team and being a black quarterback, not saying, but it was, he was kind of like our first black quarterback. I mean, like, literally, mm-hmm. just, he got first black quarterback. He took the helm as a quarterback. He didn't care what color it was. He, he, he got in the huddle and Played the trader as this is my team, period. Blank. So I watch how he controlled it. And I, as I got older, like by my senior year, for my junior year, they still was like, no, by my junior year, I was trying to show them that this is my defense. Even though, you know, my junior year, I wanted to be my defense. My sophomore year, I really wasn't ready. But by my junior and my senior year, I was like, this is my defense. I mean, I understand that y'all, but like, I'm going to be the guy. And that's how A1 was when he approached the huddle. That's how he was. Like, I don't care who you was, I don't care how long you Dola Davis, y'all can be seniors, freshmen, you can be dudes. I don't care who's in the huddle. Y'all going to listen to me. And that's how I was when I got in there. I wanted them to show that this is my defense. Even though that y'all might have these accolades in high school, that, that, that this is my team right now. You know, by my senior year, I felt like it was almost my team. You know, because uh, I ended up getting MVP as a team. But by my senior year, people showed that everybody can listen to offense and defense. Everybody can listen to, you know, offense, they kind of listen to the quarterback, you know. But, but by my senior year, I think I had everybody potential. So if I said something, it was kind of listen. Absolutely. So, yeah, you talked about those junior and senior years for you, obviously very productive, over 60 tackles each season, seven sacks in 98, six sacks in 99. Uh, obviously, though, those seasons did not go how you wanted. Obviously, you guys win the first game in 98, then go on the 21-game losing streak. I, I read an article previously where you talked about, you know, obviously as tough as those seasons were, how impressed you were with the passion of the fan base of South Carolina selling out basically every single game. Just talk about what you remember from playing in Williams-Brice Stadium and the passion of uh, of Gamecock Nation. Uh, like you said, it was just 
fashion. Like every time I came out, you know, I was expecting like nobody to be at the game. Like we were playing Florida, we were playing Tennessee. I knew we were gonna get our butt kicked. It was just I knew we were gonna lose. And you know, I not like I still came out and played the win, you know, you still do, but sometimes you playing against like T Martin, they on like a just a running streak. And I like like as long as I knew we was playing well and everything, but then it got to a certain point, I was like, Man, I'm gonna kick, you know. But then people would be still in the stands, like still in the stands. I'm looking like, wow. Like every game I come in there, still be cheering. You know, and it was just ridiculous to me because I've been around like other schools. Like we used to go to like certain schools, and you know, go to you know, I ain't trying to call all yeah, but it's the schools. Like you go to Kentucky, you go to we used to go to Vanderbilt, and they they the crowd be empty. I was like, God, they just automatically gonna give up on their team. And this is when we were losing 21 straight games, mm-hmm. and they and they still was like, okay, we probably gonna lose South Carolina. You know. We be playing the best team in the league, and they still be in pack. They be in that pack every day, and they still be cheering us on. Even after the game, you know, we'll get them next time. And, you know, not like it a bad thing. You know, you'll just like – they honestly felt like, you know, we played bad that game. But we had, you know, they looked at the positives in the game, and, you know, they never knocked it right. You know, I've been around teams, you know, uh, that time you start losing, they'll just give up on you, and they'll just stop coming out. They'll just be like, I ain't going to waste my tickets. I ain't going to waste my time. But I, when I, I can say when I was there, like we never had an empty crowd like that. Like never. Like you know, maybe at halftime people died. You know, they went and got them drinks or something. You know, who does that? Everybody does that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, in my head class in the morning, I don't know. But you know, but but I know every game was sold out when I was there, though. No doubt. So '98 was the end of an era, if you will, for South Carolina. Brad Scott obviously fired as head coach of the Gamecocks. I know you only played one season for him, but obviously Lou Holtz, the legendary head coach, Hall of Famer. Hired at the end of '98, his '99 was his first season, and again, while it was a winless season, you know, we we obviously know what happened after that 2000, 2001, the about the uh, back-to-back Outback Bowl championship. Just talk about um, what were your, I guess, what was your relationship, if any, like with Lou Holtz, and what did you take away from him before you left for the NFL? I was forever being debt for Lou Holtz, moving me to outside linebacker on my um, my last year. Uh, we had we had this. Uh, we actually, because most of our team was like freshmen. Like most of our team was built off freshmen to maybe a couple of, uh, uh, we have high note freshmen coming out. We had like a guy called Marco Hutchinson come in. He was great. They, they, they were going to put him at a, you know, outside linebacker. I was still playing in, but I knew I was an outside linebacker in my heart. But uh, and Marco wasn't really, I guess, handling like he wanted to. So like a week before the season started, he was like, John, you want to play outside linebacker? I was like, what? I said, I know nothing about it. I don't know how to cover. I don't know. He said, look, you got a week. Do you want to do it? I said, hell yeah. So then that's how I played. I started playing outside linebacker. I just got drafted at outside linebacker. Um, so me and Lou was always cool. Like, Lou, like one time, at one point, I really thought Lou didn't like because he never said anything to me. He never talked to me. And, you know, I thought Lou was like, he's talking to everybody else. And then one day I was at, uh, I was at practice. And he said, uh, he came up to me, gave me a lifesaver. I said, what is this for? You know, I didn't know. And he was kind of like, cuz, what if y'all be dead? You're my lifesaver. And I was like, okay. <laughs> and I said, oh, and then I asked him, I said, I always wonder why you never talked to me. He said, John, you're the only person I had to worry about. You, hey, I said, the only thing I worry about you going to study hall. Besides that, <laughs> I was like, I was like, right. And then, you know, after that, and then he also told me, um, I guess so, he told a lot of people that they was wondering about me being hurt all the time and just like that. And, uh, you know, people told me, like, you know, Lou said he was one of the best defense players he ever played. And, I mean, he played with some big-name players. And he said, when healthy, he said, the only reason why John gets hurt so much, he plays so hard. And uh, he gave me a good name. So, in the NFL, I ended up getting drafted so high compared to all the um, Q 
people were thinking, like, you sure he's going to be this? You know, there was a lot of question marks around me because why we kept losing, why was he hurt here and there. You know, I didn't miss no games, but people always say I was hurt because I was playing with a bad shoulder or playing with a bad ankle. So, it's not like I missed games. They were just wondering why he keeps getting hurt. But, you know, I was playing every play, and I was practicing every play also. But Lou gave no better um, – he told no reason why. You know, why he was getting hurt so much because he's, you know, out there, you know, just trying to work. So, I always have a – a lot of, a lot, a lot of, uh, like, for Lou Holtz, like, Lou can ask me anything right now, and I'd be like, oh, do it. Cause, you know, just as a man, you know, he always treated me as a person, like, we never had any jump. And, and if I ever got out of place, he would tell me, you know. So, and so for me and Lou, we always have a big, you know, I always have a big, like, I guess, place in my heart for the Holtz. Yeah, I was going to ask you, because, like, you mentioned that, uh, <clears throat> you know, it's obviously a good thing Lou Holtz didn't really have to say anything to you because you were doing your job and, you know, doing what you needed to do. But, um, I've talked to some other guys. I know Lou Holtz was very, you know, a hard-nosed guy, very tough on his players. Was there ever a time where he had to, where he he, uh, he tried to get under your skin or, you know, get get at you at practice never. or anything like that? Oh, no, never. O- only one time. I was uh, the photo season, so he was like, I wouldn't change my number to number one. Cause I said, well, <laughs> no, because I, I, no, I always wanted number one. I wanted to be like Leonard Little. If you remember mm, Leonard Little yeah. era, he was a mm. beast. I always thought Lil one. I wanted to be like him, so I asked him, could I change my number? He's all right, John. You go out here and have a um, good week of practice, I'll give you the number. I was like, cool. So I had the worst week of practice, I think, ever. Cause I was, and he went up and he said, John, you really think that you deserve that number? I was like, no. He was like, I, he said, you know, explicitly he said, John, you play like something that's in the toilet pretty much. And I'm like, you're right, and I, I prefer it. So I, I didn't, end, I, didn't, I didn't end up getting that number one, but you know it was still cool though. But I tried, and he was just like, John, that was the worst I ever seen. That was the worst week of like he, he was right. You know that was the worst practice he told me. And after that, I stopped worrying about getting number one. Start worrying about you know getting back into learning the defenses and playing and stuff. Because I had to learn a whole new, uh, a whole new, uh, I guess uh, a whole, uh, just a whole new uh, position in a matter of a week and a half. So I, I kind of been worried about that no more, and I started playing. Absolutely. So you're taken in the 2000 NFL draft, John, 13th pick overall. Simply put, just kind of describe the feeling, um, the feeling for you hearing your name call when you're selected by the New York Jets. I could honestly say it wasn't no feeling. It was just like because I knew it was coming, but I want I want to say it to come so early. So when I got hit, it was just like I don't know if you have been hit with a part that you have no emotion at all, and then you had to take like four or five seconds to think about it. I had to go in the bathroom and then understand because when it, because what it was, uh, I thought I was going to like San Francisco at like 16 or out of Carolina. Cause I told him, I said, if I go down too far, cause I talked to um, Bill Walsh, Bill Walsh like, yeah, I'm taking you. I'm taking you. Cause they had 13, but they dropped and they went to 16. So I was like, cool, I'm going to San Francisco. So I really didn't have no, I had no sense that I was going to get drafted until Sean Ellis got drafted right before me. And then we had the same agent. We was in the same place, standing right beside each other. And they said, oh, they don't get Sean. And they was everybody was screaming and hollering and everything. And then my agent said, John, John, come on, come on, come on. I'm like, what, what, what? Did it take you at 13? I'm like, what? So, you know, I'm thinking, hold on. So I'm going for two. So I had to go back and I had to, I had to walk away. Because, you know, I had time. Because there's time between they call your name. So I went back. And I'm like, oh, so I'm going to New York for Sean. And I'm thinking the Giants. Because I'm bad at it. I ain't really do nothing about the Jets like that. I ain't going to like these. But I was like, oh, okay, this is it. And I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to talk to these people because I don't know what to say right now because I was really thinking about talking about Bill Walsh and playing outside linebacker. But I still got to play outside linebacker. But my mind was like, okay, I ain't, I ain't studying that. Let me sit. 
I don't know what they did in the last three years, so I was stuck. So then when they called my name, that's when I kind of broke down, you know, and uh, I hugged my mom, and that was it. But, like, my first knew I was going. You know, you always know before, but Brad Sean got drafted, so they drafted me. But again, back then, they gave, like, 12 minutes in between, 15, 12 minutes. So you had so much time to get ready for them to call your name. So I was, I had no emotion for, like, like three minutes. I'm sitting here just blank. Like, okay, what am I going to do? I have no recollection. Of, I have nothing about the jet. The Jets called me the day before the draft and asked for my information. So literally, they didn't visit with me. They didn't come see my workouts. They didn't that. So I had no clue. Like literally, no clue. I think maybe Bill Parcell was the one that made that, that triggered it. Because you know, I think he he was looking for another outside linebacker that was kind of good, you know. But I had no clue, you know. No doubt. I, it was something funny I was reading up on, too, is people forget. So the, the 13th overall pick, it was a pick acquired from Tampa Bay in exchange for Keyshawn Johnson, which is obviously a name that uh, I think everybody knows. So <laughs> very interesting stuff. Your, yeah. your pick was traded for Keyshawn Johnson. Um, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. your rookie told, year, though. Yeah, go, go ahead. I told Keyshawn, thank you. The first time I got him, I told you thank you. I was like, thank you, man. That's all right. <laughs> No doubt. So your rookie season, 12 tackles, four and a half sacks in only six games. Obviously, you were injured your rookie year. Um, you bounced back big in 2001, 58 tackles, 13 sacks, and you're named the AFC Pro Bowl in just your second season in the NFL. I'll ask you simply, John, again, sort of going from high school to college, what, what would you attribute such a fast transition to? Because obviously, each level that you go up, the game gets quicker, the guys are better, you're facing, but you seem to just flawlessly transition to that next level. I can honestly see my track background, just my track background, my basketball, my explosiveness and stuff like that. Because uh, I know, I know my um, well, I knew when I first got to the, um, I got to college, I was running with receivers and stuff, and I know that's abnormal for defensive linemen. Then when I got to the league, I still was running like with receivers and stuff. And it was just like, got like you know, and then um, I had a lot of players. I thought all the coaches were sitting there watching me. They couldn't, they wouldn't say that to me. I said, well, I know what I was talking man, you are, you are all right. And, you know, like I can make plays here and there, but a lot of the players was like, man, you, you going to be special. And then they start, a lot of my teammates started telling me. Then I had, I was lucky to have Brian Cox, my, um, my rookie year before I got hurt, to school me on, like, how to learn how to play. So my second year, I was ready because uh, all that time sitting and watching, seeing Sean doing good, seeing people working, I know I was like, and then, you know, like, even uh, – I, I was set to be, like, maybe the rookie of the year, but, you know, Brian Erlach got – I mean, I know we would have been – we would like, have been real close to each other because we was – you know, I had some people to look at that I wanted to play like and everything like that. And um, so – but, you know, it, it was more like learning football. And I, I knew I had a capacity to learn football. And I always played football like it was football. I didn't play like a – I didn't play like a – you know, I tried to hurt somebody or kill somebody. When we were school, you know, you played football. I played football just for fun. I didn't really – I tried to never put the check in front of it, which I hate people think, oh, John, you left because of the money. I had a long conversation with uh, – actually, this is a funny story. I know I'm way on key right now. But uh, I was uh, – it was a Jets form. And this guy was saying that – they were just telling me happy birthday. I just happened to be here yesterday. This is Lord, really happy They were just saying, yeah, I hate John. He left because of the money. I was looking like, you know, that, that year I got hurt. Uh, the year before I left the Jets, I got hurt. And um, it was a knee. So I played like 12 games at nine and a half sacks at a time. And they were like, well, John, that's for the money. But in the, in the year after that, I played all 16 games and had 10 and a half sacks and six college fumbles. I said, if I quit on y'all, why would I come back after that year? Y'all say I quit. 
Like, why would I come back and have a better year than I had? You know what I mean? I came back and played. But you get what I'm saying? Like, the, like it was my year. I played my five years, and I won a contract. You just have to play a five. You want a good contract, but I got franchised. But my franchise year, I came and played. I came and played and had. I played 16 games, played every game, and had a better year than I had a year before. That's what I was saying. I said, y'all, are y'all really just looking at what the media say? Are y'all watching the stats? And then they kind of they realized when I, when I broke it down to them, they were like, yeah, it does make sense. You played that, that year that you didn't have to play. After you got hurt and everybody said, I, I gave up in the playoffs, which is ridiculous. I came back the next year and played every game and had better stats than everybody. But it was kind of weird to me that people like listen to the media a lot. But when I got to Atlanta, the media don't really matter like that. You know, people watch how you play. But you know the media, you know how the media in New York is. Mm-hmm. You'll say anything and people believe it. Yeah, well, I was just going to ask, because you said you were reading the Jets forums and stuff. I mean, was that a big transition for you as far as just dealing with the media, dealing with – because like you said, in New York, it's very cutthroat, obviously. Yeah, it was easy. I came to Atlanta. They were just proud to see my first mm-hmm. game. I balled out. And they already saw – and then and, uh, I guess they, they – it's different It's different in different cities. You know, like uh, some people, that all they can do is read the paper. And I'm not knocking New York media, but you know, like, you see a lot of New York media is totally different. They say something like most people don't have time to really watch TV in New York because everybody's busy, everybody's working and everything. Because when I first got, instead of them seeing like my stats from college, they booed me, right? Because they knew who John Abraham was. <laughs> so I had to play. When I, when I started playing, that's when they got me. They booed me time. I mean, they knew Sean because Sean went to Tennessee. I went to South Carolina. We had really no footage, right? Mm-hmm. They, they they wanted Chad first and, you know, Anthony Beck went to a nice name. So I was the only person coming from the 0-11 team, South Carolina, never heard of them because we never really had no media like that. So, like I said, the thing about New York, you got newspapers still. Who uses the newspaper really now? Nobody. You have a newspaper here. You got media here. They they like that media company of the world. So most people just read the paper and they read from there and then they judge the person they get, you know? Like you could you can have one bad day in New York and it can pretty much end your career. Like you really you live to have one bad day there. But you know in Atlanta they kinda of like they're more forgiving. We got we got other stuff. We got real lives. Not saying New York people don't so don't don't misquote me, but a lot of people they kinda of like Wall Street, they read the paper, you know, they mm-hmm. go to the game, but they, they just hear about what happened or hear about something compared to people like in Atlanta. Like, you know, we have like more time to kind of sit there and watch the highlights. Like, mm-hmm. you know, New York is a busy person. It's a busy place now. New York, you don't have time to really sit there and, and get to know the people like that, you know? Oh, no, no. Hey, I'm, I'm not here to misquote you. Trust me. I'm on your side. <laughs> okay. Yeah, um, I don't want the people from New York to think I hate them or something. No, I'm not. You know, but New York is a busy place. Like, you know, you, <laughs> yeah, it's a hustle-bustle place. Like, I came to Atlanta. I was just like, wow, it's so cool. I just, like, I came to the thing, and I just found this, like, big deal and everything. I'm thinking the media going to be like, oh, John, John, John. You think this, that, they just came, hey, how you doing? That's great. Now, you know, look at that guy there talking. And I was just like, that's it. I'm expecting, like, all kind of questions about what I did in the past and everything like that. I was like, wow. So it's a big difference, though, you know. And I, and I can honestly say um, in, in Atlanta, I never got misquoted. And, you know, I never got misquoted. And um, if something happened, it's kind of like – like, I, I was uh, unfortunate enough to have a DUI when I was young. I mean, it followed my career the whole time because I guess they had nothing else to talk about. I had I got into the altercation here. I wasn't drunk, but I got into the altercation here. I was trying to get home, and I was drinking that night, but we kind of over it after that. They didn't keep bringing it back up. Like, you remember John got spoke to us, John? And I say if you get in trouble, you, you own up to it, and you got to let it go because, you know, a lot of people, 
that had uh, did a lot of things in life that we'll never hear about because they're not in the media life. So one thing I said when I came here, it was a lot easier. So leaving New York was, it was tough on me because I got drafted by that team. Think about it. In high school, I was playing mm-hmm. team. I was Gamecocks. I wanted to retire as Jets. But, you know, stuff happened. Getting traded to me felt like I wasn't good enough to play anymore. Yeah, I was just going to say, you were with the Jets from 2000 to 2005, obviously. It was a very good transition for you from 06 to 2012. You were with Atlanta. Um, your first couple years, again, 2006 and 2007 with Atlanta, solid seasons. But 2008, uh, I'm sure you would agree, was really your your breakout season, your best season in the NFL. You finished with 16 and a half sacks um, in 16 games that season. Just, just kind of talk about the 2008 season in Atlanta and just, I guess, sort of what clicked for you. I can say I can say numerically, but my best season to me was my last year. Um, I played in Arizona because I got to play outside linebacker, um, and I played 99% of the plays. Uh, I didn't play the first four games. I mean, numerically, you can say that that, that season was good, but um, I only played 63% of the plays. I didn't even make the Pro Bowl that year. <laughs> That's what's funny. I didn't even make the Pro Bowl because they saying that, well, the only thing, he's just a situational rusher. I said, if I had played 99, we beat people by like 40 points, right? Mm. So instead of me being like a guy that wanted to get numbers, I, I should let some of my young guys get some play time. But see, now that I look back, like I, I was telling my nephew the other day, because my nephew stays with me now, you know, well, usually somebody stay with me. I, I like my family around me. But I was telling my family, man, if I knew what I knew now, if I knew people were going to judge me from, like, trying to get anybody else in the game, I would have stayed in the game and got my numbers up. Because it was, uh, I remember one game we played in Oakland that year. I played seven plays, had three sacks and three college fumbles, but I came out the game with only seven plays. But if I knew now, I would have stayed and got some more numbers. It wasn't really a numerical thing for me. It was like, long as you win the game, I was happy. You could ask a lot of my teammates. I wanted, like, usually after halftime, I was done. Like, I might play right to the third quarter, but we, we rarely played. Like, the year we went 14-2, we had a great year. I was rarely playing because we were, we, were, we were winning. So, instead of staying in the game trying to get the trash sacks, I just call them trash sacks. I mean, you get a sack, I mean, you're still getting a sack. But, you know, a team down 35-0, they got their quarterback, and you know they're going to throw. I just get my little young guys in there so they can get a taste. And you can even ask people, but when I played uh, Arizona, I didn't start the first four games. But then we had a few people got hurt. Then when I got my starting position, I played like 99% of the play. And that's how I wanted to play. That outside linebacker can do it, but that defensive end is a little tougher to play 99% of the play. It's, it's, it's tough. I'm not saying it's not possible, but it's tough. You know, um, especially, especially if, I'm, if I'm winning a lot, I want to get my other teammates. You know, I, I want to get them to look at because a lot of guys are kind of scared to lose their jobs. You know, I never had no problem that nobody else in the game. I thought he was better for that position. But when I was in Arizona, they let me play. So it took me back because I never got to start at outside linebacker until then. My whole career, I came in the league as an outside linebacker. I was I didn't start my rookie year, but I was just get, I was working into the starting position and got hurt against Lincoln. I knew I was going to be starting the week after that. I got hurt that year, and then we went there. the next year, <clears throat> Herm came and put me back to defensive end. And I was like, dang. I'm going back, and I knew an outside linebacker was my um, position to be. So then I played defensive end most of my rest of the career, and I finally got to be outside linebacker again my, my last year playing a whole season. And I, that was my best year to me. I mean, I got to cover. I got to make sure I can cover everything. But I'm saying if I could have played that my like my entire career, if I could have played the outside linebacker, if I could have gotten a 4-3 defense or something like that, I think my numbers would have been crazy. No doubt. So kind of switching gears here, because I want to, you know, go back sort of your time in Atlanta. It, it started out, I mean, as far as the Atlanta Falcons organization, just that team in general, 
it, things were very interesting. Obviously, you're dealing with the Michael Vick stuff that was going on with the dogfighting scandal. Bobby Petrino, I know, was your head coach in 2007, and he he bailed for the Arkansas job. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm sure you didn't let that stuff affect you, but, I mean, did you envision such a long, successful career in Atlanta with kind of the way it started from the organizational standpoint? I did because I trusted uh, I trusted Arthur Blank. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, one thing I can say, uh, losing all no game in college, Showed me that they always be a turnaround. And I signed up for the long haul. I gave, I said, I signed up for six years, so I wasn't going to work. You know, um, the builder took us. Like even to now, if I could have played tonight, I would have stuck with. You know, I just happened to get cut from the team. But you know, but uh, I was, I was gonna stick with the Falcons forever. They gave me the chance. I was, there was no way I was trying to go nowhere. Like if the builder took us for however long it took us out of state. So and and I believe in uh, Arthur Blank, and I believe in, I believe in Rich McCray. So. Um, Whatever they did, I was going to ride with. And I, I knew we had uh, a nucleus that could have got us, um, you know, there. Uh, you know, I was kind of – I was kind of – I was kind of disappointed that we got rid of uh, Jim Moore my first year. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and even with uh, – you know, even with, like me leaving Atlanta at the time I left uh, when we all lost to San Francisco, I thought we should have – I thought we could have had another year together. We might have would have – we could have had a team that could have made it to the, you know, the championship game. So I never got a chance to uh, play in the season. So, you know, for me, it was a little it, – it, it's still heartbreaking here now, but it's been about six, seven years now, so I'm kind of over it now. But I think, uh, you know, it all, you know, you always look in the past and that, but, you know, so. Yeah, I was going to actually jump to that. Obviously, again, your career in Atlanta went very, very well. I wanted to jump again because, like you mentioned, I, I you know, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe – 2012 was certainly the closest you ever came to the Super Bowl. Falcons had a fantastic year that year. You guys go 13-3. and three. Um, You obviously played with some fantastic players, notably Matt Ryan, Julio Jones, Tony Gonzalez, uh, Thomas Deku, Willie Moore. I mean, it's just named – obviously yourself. That was a fantastic team. Um, you guys, again, go 13-3 and three overall. You face Seattle. You get, the, you get the first round by. You face Seattle in the divisional round, and – win that game 30 to 28 what I remember was a fantastic game back and forth game I think you guys hit the hit the game winning field goal and then um San Francisco comes to town with Colin Kaepernick just kind of talk about again I hate I hate to make you relive it John but as far as you know getting that it close it's, it's been it's been so long ago you know like one time I couldn't I didn't watch the game it took me about four or five years to watch the game. I just finally watched the game I'm, I'm serious I finally watched the game entirely maybe last last Christmas Mm-hmm. I watched the whole game. Um, well, first of all, it was bad coaching, and I ain't trying to make it over now. Mike Smith shouldn't have had us in the game. That late. I ended up getting hurt in that Tampa game. Mm-hmm. It was a game we didn't need. I understand why he did it, but that was just a bad coaching call. So I ended up getting hurt, and I hurt my ankle in the game, which – and it, it kind of messed me up for the playoffs. You know, I was ready to play, and we ended up going to San Francisco, and I was playing like half a cent, so I couldn't play the whole game like I wanted to. And that, that just, that's the personal spot on me. But, you know, if, if, if we already got home field advantage and this game means nothing besides us being 15-1, to 1, you know, you, you kind of take your players out. You play like maybe first half and you take them out and then mm-hmm. I end up getting hurt. So, for me, it was like, that was just bad coach. But, I, you know, I was trying to be a coachable player. And I, even in games that we've played that mattered, they would take me out of the game at the end of the game. So, mm-hmm. I was looking like, well, what was this, four, four? It was like four minutes left. We ain't going to win. And, and the players already told us they were trying to hurt us. That's mm-hmm. why that coach, you know, I'm like, okay, so, but, you know, it is what it is. But I think personally, um, our game plan was perfect at one point because I talked to a lot of people because I, I used to work out with uh, 
with Frank Gore, and I used to work out with um, I mean, I think it's uh, Davis, like Vernon Davis mm-hmm. in Miami on the off season. And they said they was crying at halftime. They knew we won that game, and we did too. But it was a, uh, you know, just unfortunate. I guess you can say it's hard to like say because I watched and I, I, I forgot Matt had two turnovers in the last couple minutes. I thought we was going down. I think he threw an interception. Then he he feels like an uncaused fumble or something. Yeah, when I said I watched the game, I literally forgot about all this stuff. I just remember not being playing. Like, I even played for, I played a lot in the game, but I just remember not playing, like, as in I wasn't healthy, but I saw us winning. So, and then it got kind of out of hand, and we was kind of going down. I had to watch the game again because my memory was kind of like, we played great. They played like, you know, my, my memory was totally off because I was in the game, but I wasn't. And I remember, like, every time I came out the field, I feel like they were, like, taking me out of the game. So, when I watched the game, I played a lot, but I didn't play it myself. I fell down a lot. Uh, so, for me, watching the game was kind of like just getting over it. And for me, watching it got me over And, you know, like, it was just – and there was some bad calls at the end on our side, you know, because you've seen um, that last pass that Matt threw, you know, that was fast interference on them, mm-hmm. but they didn't call it. I mean, we got a lot of bad calls in the game, too. I watched the game over, and I was like, you know, I don't know. Maybe San Francisco is a better team. I don't think Kaepernick really won that game. I think he lost it. And, I mean, but it did get his name out. If we were to win that game, I don't know if we would have really been talking about Kaepernick that much. Not saying it, not in a bad way. I'm just saying what I think. Because we would have won that game, we would have been the Super Bowl with Baltimore. I knew it would be Baltimore. We had Baltimore's number four. <laughs> we had their number. Like, we was hopefully like – Man, we get to Baltimore. We saw Baltimore like we like, man, we would have killed them. Like we just had, I we just had a number like every year we played them. You look at the stats, we had Baltimore number. I can't remember Baltimore really beating us at all. And, and you know, and that's when uh, that's when Turner was still turning a little bit. And we, we said we had a squad that year. I think we had a squad to do it all. And, you know, everybody said, I just wish we had one more year after that to um get one. More shock, I think, would have had a better team. You know, I think, I think letting, uh, you know, even even letting Dante go and Turner go. Because Turner had a bad year that year, but I mm. think he still could have bounced back. He played like hurt a lot in the year, but we made it without him that year. So I think, you know, bringing him back would have helped the offense. It would have bounced the offense out more. Because I think he had some more. I think he had some more yards in. You know, it was just like, had, like I had a lot of bad years when I got hurt. You know, playing mm. hurt. You know, so I think the year I had five and a half sacks. It was like, John, what's wrong? What's wrong? I said, look, man, my cornerback sucked. I told him I don't like stuff. Like that. And I came back and made the Pro Bowl that next year. You know, I came back and got my number second to 13. I said, look, it was like, my corner, I'm, I'm getting there like two seconds, and the ball is already out. Then we went and got a Dante, went and got a Dante family, went and got cornerbacks to really do something. Then I had a Pro Bowl year. So, you know, it's, it's all about, you know, different things. Like, you got people don't understand that. Like, it's all about different stuff. You got to understand. Like, it, it, one player can't really win. Like, one player can't win games for you, but not really. You know, like, Matt Ryan is great because he got great receivers. Julio's great because he got Matt Ryan. Like everybody, everything mm-hmm. coincides. I mean, you still can be a great player, but you got to have that person that can work with you. I guess. No doubt. So when I say to you, John, that you know John Abraham, the all-time sacks leader for the Atlanta Falcons, how does that make you feel? I really don't care. I mean, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't accomplish half the stuff I wanted while I was there. Mm-hmm. I, I keep forgetting that as me. I mean, you couldn't tell if you didn't know that from I tell you, right? Mm. Oh yeah. I mean, you don't you don't you don't really hear about my name no more about the Falcons and everything like that. But you know, I think uh, some stuff like that. I think you know, some enough. Like my thing is, it's not really that big because that's not what I. I didn't come there to be the all-time sack leader. Like I didn't know a lot of stuff I did. People after people told me like when I got a hundred sacks, I didn't know nothing about it. You know, I, I knew mm. I was like ranked like number 
when I when I got to a hundred, that's when I started paying attention because I was like, oh shoot, I got a hundred now. Okay, then I saw how close I was to being in the top five and maybe the top ten. Then I got the top ten. I started paying attention. And I think when you start paying attention, your numbers start taking away from your game. You know what I mean? And I always played like I'm not worrying about getting stacked in this game. I, I want to get a stack in every game. Just period. Like that's what I want to do. But like um, I guess when I looked, uh, somebody showed it's funny because this this literally happened this week. My friends like check this dude's stats. Like you think that's all the same number? He said like 133 and a half stacks. That was a uh, 12 overall. Uh, and uh, he had like like a tackles behind the line was like seventh overall and mm. number two, number two, number three, or number two and number three and uh caused fumble. I said, hell, yeah, that's the uh, Hall of Fame number. I said, dude, that's yours. <laughs> I was like, shit. I was like, I ain't knew that. I think it was number three or number two. I didn't know, but I was like, he literally like showed me the numbers. He said, man, what you think these numbers? You think these Hall of Fame numbers? I was like, hell yeah. Like, he's 12 overall already. And I, but see, I was nice when I uh, finished. And I think I was first at script that time when I finished playing. But he was showing me stuff. So I was just like, yeah, that's first, that's all the first ballot right there. He was like, right. so he, he pretty much in top 10 in all categories when he done. And I, I didn't even pay attention to it. And then he looked and he looked, then he showed me, but that's you. I was like, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's funny, Zelda. That literally happened there, and I'm not hyping myself up because I never pay attention. But I, I say I was, I was, I was hanging at a restaurant where I always eat every day, and I guess somebody, I think the NFL, uh, NFL, 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 NFL throwback. Mm-hmm. They be, they be showing people that you know had good plays or might possibly be Hall of Fame there to show whether they Hall of Fame numbers. And um, I'm not friends with like. Hey man, check this out. And I'm not paying no attention. I'm sitting there eating and everything, joking around with a lot of people. And he showed it to me. He said, the Hall of Fame number. And I'm looking like, he tells dude, 12 sacks. I think he's trying to say they're a guy that, like, maybe just retired or just like that. And he got mm. them numbers already. I'm like, yeah. He told me it was mine. I'm like, yeah, it's pretty awesome. Well, I'm glad you just answered my next question because I was going to ask you. I know that uh, you were inducted in the South Carolina Football Hall of Fame, but I was going to ask you your, I guess your, uh, your opinion. Did you feel like you deserved to be in the NFL Hall of Fame? I would take that as a resounding yes, without a doubt. I would say yes as well. I would, you, I would, your numbers first, say so. At first, at first, I was going to say maybe like when I get older, but looking back now, at, and and I, I mean literally, that guy had to show me the numbers like how I finished, and mm. you see all that. Playing 15 years, um, and like I even say, the percentage of plays I played, you think about how many times I didn't, like how many times I got hurt, and you take it up. Yeah, I would say, I would say pretty much, yeah. And I'm not, I, I hate saying stuff like that because I don't like, but see, I think if I would have won a championship or had a defensive player of the year or something like that, I think it would have been a, you know, easy, like first, mm-hmm. first ballot, you know, but since it wasn't that, you know, because, you know, Mike Strahan, Mike Strahan wasn't even first ballot. He won a championship here. I think he finished fifth over. When he finished, he was just overall. He had 141 sacks. So I was hoping to catch him in sacks because I knew my other numbers might have him, like script fumbles and tackles for losses. I knew I probably had him on them. But, uh, you know, he, he, he didn't go to first ballot. So I can't really – if I get there, I'll be happy, though, because, you know, right now I'm doing a tri-sector. I got half that whole thing second line. So I'm not really tripping, though, because I think when people worry about it too much, I mean, it'll be a big trip. But I, I don't think I'll be first ballot. There's so many people behind me. That should be in there. That I think should get in there. Also, if we look back, like how many guys that you thought was in there that's not. But I think I think looking now, like like I got I got to see the numbers when I finished. I think I finished first in script fumbles when I finished. And uh, I don't know what what I was tackled for loss, but I know I'm seventh now. But I know I finished ninth, and 
overall in sacks or whatever. So I think looking back, like looking at the numbers, if you was to show my numbers and ask me, I'd probably say, yeah. You know, but I think once you pass Lawrence Taylor anything, mm, no <laughs> doubt. Tom, you should. And I'm not saying that because, you know, Derek, Derek, life got cut short. And uh, LT played in a different era. Mm. But I think once, once, once your numbers pass them, you kind of like, not saying you should automatically be in there, but you should be pretty close. To you see how long it took Kevin Green to get in there, though, mm-hmm. and uh, stuff like that. So, you know, I, hopefully. But, you know, I, I really wasn't a media guy like that. You know, I, I didn't do a lot of stuff like that. Cause my main thing was football. And I think a lot of times at the end, that kind of hurts you. You see a lot of guys that you know that should be like automatic end up, but, you know, when they kind of don't do this and don't do that, people don't really pay them attention, you know. Because I didn't know my numbers that good myself, but they're my numbers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no doubt. Again, I mean, you finished 133 and a half sacks, 48 forced fumbles, um, six fumble recoveries. I mean, yeah, the, you know, 444 total tackles. Um, yeah, the, the, the stats definitely speak for themselves. I want to move, you know, John, your career post Atlanta, March 1st, 2013, you released by the Atlanta Falcons. The Arizona Cardinals signed you um, in July of 2013. You had a really good year for them in 2013, 11 and a half sacks. And I believe you talked about earlier, you felt like that was your best year overall in the NFL because of the moved outside linebacker. But September 2014, you suffer a concussion. And, you know, I know the next season, obviously you're placed on IR due to the concussion. Is that something that, I mean, would you say that it, that sort of made the decision easy for you to uh, to call it a career in the oh, NFL? Yeah, it took me a long time. I gave, I gave Bruce Aarons a lot of calls at night. Like, I'm coming back. But my doctor told me, like, I was bleeding on both sides of my brain. Like, I think you know, I, I still suffer from memory loss here and there, you know. But uh, I literally was losing credit cards. <laughs> I lost a phone like a day. I was forgetting my name and stuff. I couldn't remember, like, where I was. I was passing out in places and you know, waking up and didn't know where I was. So I think it was the best thing ever that happened. Even uh, cause Bruce Bruce is probably my savior. Cause I was gonna quit when I started the season. I just didn't feel right, and I was like, man, I'm gonna retire. Bruce like, no, just just try to play, John. Just give me like, just, just play. You know, usually when you play, you get your mind back right. You are started, so I um, I went played, and it's, I don't even know what play it was. I can't even lie. I think I think I read back over. I think we were playing San Diego. I don't even know what team we were playing, but I was out and um. And uh, Bruce was like, man, I went to the hospital the next day because I couldn't. I literally couldn't remember that. And I was trying to, like, focus everything together and everything like that. And then I went to the doctor, and he said, well, John, we found these small spots on both sides of your brain. Like, you really can't tell but these little spots that you're bleeding on both sides of your brain. That might that might be the reason why you can't remember stuff, stuff like that. You know, like, you know, like, you know it, it took like that. And it wasn't even a big hit. I took a lot of big hits more than that. But, um. You know, I had a couple seizures and stuff like that. You know, things like that that mm. I'm glad it happened then. And it took me a while. It took me a while. You know, I went on binge just going out every night, partying, trying to do this, trying to do that because I thought I was going to die because they said if you get hit in the head, you'll die again. So, But now it's like it's pretty much healed now. It's been uh, six or five years now. And mm. now I don't really have – I don't have the seizures no more. I don't uh, – you know, I'm pretty much back to John Abraham pretty much. You see how I talk now. Mm-hmm. Like, you try to talk to me back in the day, I'd probably say something off the wall. I'd probably curse <laughs> or say something that I, that I know. <laughs> no, it took me – but I started listening to Mozart. Like, I, like if I would tell people they do constantly, like, um, start listening to Mozart. Start listening to – try to try to do stuff. And first of all, don't don't change yourself. Don't don't go to uh, extreme. You see a lot of these guys. I be reading about guys going extreme and they end up killing themselves, something like that. First of all, try to be yourself most of all. Um Try stuff new. Try stuff that you say you'll never do. Like I always, I always wanted to draw. I always like like classical music. I started listening to classical music. Um, 
learn the guitar a little more. Um, I speak. I try to speak my French. I mean, I can't absorb it like I used to. But at least I'm trying. You know, I do my harmonica. I always did the drum. I always love music. Um, you know, I try to talk to people as much as I can. You know, I try not to let my temps get up because uh, when I get mad, I get super mad. You know, it's just something that comes with the stuff of happening. I guess the PSTD and the CTD and all that, all that stuff comes from that. Like you can't really control it, but I've learned how to control it uh, by speaking and writing and doing stuff. Like I like it. sometimes I don't like being around a lot of people. That's that's mainly why I don't do media stuff sometimes. Mm-hmm. Like it's cool when phone for me to come, like you know, doing like ESPN or maybe sports. Like I, I don't think I can do it because sometimes people get aggressive. Like I couldn't be like uh, mm-hmm. Skip Bayless. I couldn't I couldn't deal with somebody like Skip Bayless film because I really would take it personal. And like before, mm-hmm. I never took stuff personal. And people would like flip on me now. I take it personal, and uh, I've learned to like back off. People are really not trying to be mean to me. They're just like because back in the day we used to joke all the time. Sometimes people joke. I get sensitive. And I learned how to walk away now. So that, that's that's a big thing with a lot of people. I think they have it. I would love to like talk to a lot of guys and just like sit down and have a conversation with them, show them how I kind of help myself. And uh, it's gonna take a lot of stuff by yourself and a lot of people. A lot of times, people want people to do it. There's gonna be a lot of things that you gotta do by yourself that's gonna help it. It's not gonna be like going to therapy and stuff like that. Therapy is cool to a certain extent, but it's gonna have to get to a point that you start reading books for yourself. You start walking by yourself. You start going driving by yourself. You start doing stuff alone to strengthen your mind by yourself, so you can understand how to handle other things around people. Because I think a lot of times when people get through that stuff, you see a lot of time they get interaction with people that don't usually interact with, and that's how they end up getting in trouble or end up killing mm-hmm. themselves. I mean, I had a lot of like thoughts about doing it, but then I, you know, I, I started thinking about my family. I started thinking about my kids. I started thinking about how good I really do have it compared to. I really don't. A lot of people look at their past and like I, I could look at it like, dang, if I'd have played one more year, I could have had these many stats. You got you got to cut that off because your life is done fast. You can get what you did and see how much you've done that people look up to you through. So that's what I had to do, and I think a lot of guys don't really see that. They just kind of see what they did do, you know. But even mm-hmm. people that make it to the NFL and they say they bust, they make it to the NFL. Only one percent of the people make it, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. And a lot of that drag people down, you know, like. Like a lot of people should look at uh, Morris Correct and people like that. Like, like at one point, I know he was down because like everybody say on the bus. Then you gotta understand, like I made to the NFL. Think about how many people didn't make. Like, they only like sixteen hundred NFL players in the world at the time. Only sixteen hundred in the world. I mean, mm-hmm. anybody else can be rappers. Anybody else can be drug dealers. Anybody else can be doctors, lawyers. How many doctors and lawyers? Are there? How many people do your job? And I ain't knocking you as a job. But there are a lot of people that do your job. That, that you know, it's a lot. It's a lot tougher to make the NFL. So I think a lot of us see it like that and stop saying that we're bust, even though we did. I mean, you made it like to the peak that people dream about since they were kids. And I think that was my big thing with me. And I made it to the peak plus, you know, a lot of mm-hmm. people and I have to start seeing it. And, you know, like a lot of times you don't like to tap yourself on the back, but sometimes you do. Hang on. No doubt. So I kind of want to go back, John, because obviously you being such an NFL veteran, I know this is something that, that has come up probably. I'm sure people have asked you about it, but the, uh, the concussion stuff you had at the end of your career, obviously the word CTE comes up a lot. I know it's something the NFL is really taking on. They're taking a bunch of precautions. But w- when you hear that, I mean, what's your opinion kind of on the whole the whole CTE thing now with the NFL? Uh, I, I, you know what? I really can't call it. You know, I, I like how they're doing it. But, you know, I, I, I just hope a lot of these guys, they're really are, are just getting dinged up compared to getting concussions. You know, there are a lot of guys that I see out there like, they barely getting hit. And I don't know if they're getting – you know, you really can't tell, though. 
But I know a lot of people that's their way out. You know, I've I've heard people talk about, man, yeah, I got I'm playing concussion, I'm doing all that. I was like, man, do you really have concussion before? You know, like we really like people that really have to deal with it, it's not no joke. You know, so right. some of the guys, you know, you know what I mean, it shouldn't be automatically you know, you get what I'm saying, like mm. like I know for a fact back in the day, man, I know I used to get concussed probably every day in practice. So we used to hit head up, head up, head up. We had drills. Everybody asked me when my first concussion was. I said probably when I was like in second grade. Got kicked in the head. Think about it. You got hit with a bat when you were little. You got hit with a fastball. You got hit with a kickball. You got tackled by your brother and couldn't see right. So I don't even know when my concussion started. <laughs> so, you know, so everybody says it's just football, but outside life had to do it. If you play any kind of sport, mm. basketball, I remember getting concussion in basketball. But, you know, back in the day, it was fun to get knocked out. Mm. So, you know, I know it's more than just football. I think they're doing a good job, but you, you got to understand, it start way before you get in the NFL. With most, with most guys, it start way before the NFL. Yeah, and I think it's a lot of other sports, too. I know there's been an attack on exactly. football. But I mean, I think UFC and hockey and, like you said, mm. baseball at times. And, yeah, no, no, yeah. no, not a yeah. doubt. Do, do you catchers, still – I know catchers probably get them a lot. Catchers, <laughs> you know, getting hit by that – getting swept by that bat or getting the ball to the um, cage. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no question. No doubt. Do, do you still watch a lot of football? I know you mentioned earlier you watched South Carolina and actually play Clemson, but do you, do you watch a lot of NFL or? I watch now. It took me, I'm telling you, it, it literally started this year. I started watching this year. Like I used to watch games, da, 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 you know, but I just started watching. I, I held, I held a, I held a grievance against Atlanta because I felt like they did me wrong for so long. But then I started watching like last year, you know, I, I kept like, I said, if I keep holding stuff in, it's disappointing. And also, it helped. It helped with my um, concussion stuff. Like I was mad at everybody who ever did me wrong. You know, the guys was telling me that I hate the Jets. I said I don't hate the Jets or the Falcons. I, said, I hate how they did me. If you work at McDonald's and they fire you, you go to Burger King, you are gonna hate McDonald's for a little while. I don't care who you is. You are gonna stop eating their food. <laughs> That's just common sense, right? <laughs> I know people see it as, oh man, come on, they paid you good. I said I said you know, but I still got fired. People gotta understand if you get cut, you got fired. Like regardless of what you're saying, you gotta look for another job. And then I got cut, like, not at my prime, but I was I was pretty good. I was a decent worker. You know, I still was flipping the burgers good. I had I had the fries cooked pretty time, you know, time. You know, I might have I might have uh, dropped the burger here and there, but I still was, like, you know, <laughs> getting the orders done, you know. So I see it like that. If people see it, like, in the smaller terms instead of the bigger term, it's a job. And, you know, so I, I saw myself as getting fired, and I never got fired before. You know, I got traded. So they sent me to another job, but I never got fired, you know. So it was tough getting fired. No doubt. So kind of looking back, John, on your Gamecock career, you know, I kind of mentioned what happened after you left South Carolina, the back-to-back Outback Bowl wins. Obviously, you know, Lou Holtz goes throughout his career. Steve Spurrier's hired, obviously, a ton of success. Had the SEC East title in 2010, the three straight 11-win seasons. And I know I've read some articles before you talk about kind of the Gamecock family. I know it was big in Arizona for you with – uh. With, I believe Jasper Brinkley was there. I believe that's who it was that you got to stay with. And you talk about the Gamecock family. And um, just talk about what it's been like since you left South Carolina to see the type of success they've had, um, not only with Lou Holtz, but then Steve Spurrier and also what Will Muschamp's building at South Carolina right now. I love it to death, though. But the only thing, only thing I don't like about it, I wish we would have a little bit more older players on the wall. We got a lot of people that when we came in the winning regime, but, mm-hmm. you know, like Turo, you know, I just got in one of the linebacker rooms. I'm like, damn, all the time I deserve is a linebacker room? And I'm hating on that, though, because I, I should be happy. I, you know, you'd be privileged, but I'm like, man, I was there when we had to struggle. Like a, like, like a Turo, Freeman, Zola Davis, Anthony Wright, 
And I, I think A one guy in the room finally yeah, though. Yeah, the quarterback been, room. Yeah, he's in the quarterback room. Yeah, yeah. And I'm in the I'm in D line room, uh, the linebacker one of the rooms. But I'm like, like a Turo was like the first guy that really was a big guy, like a Turo Freeman, like Anthony mm-hmm. Wright. We were there like when we was losing though. So you know, if we would have won, if we would have won a couple games, I totally understand. But also, you gotta look at it's kind of like if you look at. Uh, his name Brewski and a lot of the guys back in the day, even uh, what his name Erlacher, he wasn't on a great team at New Mexico, but they knew we had to get him up there. I mean, there was other guys out there too. So it's kind of like for me, like not seeing us up there, you know, the guys that really hustled and bustled and kind of, I didn't say we ain't made away from them, but we was there before them. You know, there are a lot of guys, you know, like I, I really don't see Sterling Sharp name up there enough for me. Sterling was a Gamecock, you know it, right? Oh yeah, oh no, cool. yeah. He he's actually yeah, uh, they they've got a I think they've got something of him in the in, indoor facility, and they got him in the wide receiver room. But no, I like, like, I, I said, like you said, you think about it, he should have right, a statue. right. Like I think about it, he was the greatest receiver. His number retired. Mm-hmm. It's just like a certain you know, and George just got his statue, but George had to go through a lot of stuff to get you know clarify some things in his life to make it there. But, you know, hopefully we get, hopefully Asia get her statue mm-hmm. coming up sooner or later. But, you know, I see a lot of people after they leave school, they kind of get it and get it and get it. But, you know, George, George had to wait a long time. A lot mm-hmm. of times people got to wait, they die. Some of these people I want to wait at it die. You know, we got, yeah. we got some good, we got some good players out here. And I think, you know, we, we got to do a little better of the old players that was here that kind of, you know, you know, that I think that's why a lot of people don't really know our uh, history. Because you go to, like, certain campuses, and I, you know who went there. You know that. You know that. But when I go there, I kind of look around, and I'm like, you know. Like, a lot of people don't know we had a Heisman Trophy guy. Mm. Yeah. You know what I mean? A lot, a lot of people, like, I mean, people know about Clowney, but Clowney, if Clowney, I'm not saying Clowney. That, but if you take that hit away from Clowney's thing, he still have been a great player. But that hit mm. in Michigan, that made him worldwide right there. Like, mm. that, that got him, like, notoriety. Because if you take that hit away, we don't really see other – Lashes of him, yeah. and I'm not knock, I'm not knocking him, so I hope you don't take that the wrong way. I'm just saying, you take that away, which I'm saying, he was a great player the whole time he was there. You know, he made he made a couple, you know, decisions as a game cop. People were like, well, maybe he should, you know, like by talking about sitting out and stuff. It kind of touched people the wrong way, but he should have a statue or something like that, or maybe like something. You know, he mm-hmm. got the people know him because it's it's his time. But you don't want you don't want to wait. Like for me, it's been 20 years pretty much now since I left school. But well, it actually has been 20 years. But you still want people to know you 20 years when you're gone. Like, mm-hmm. 20 years from now, are, are we going to remember Clowney when he's done football? Are we still going to remember Clowney? From that player, they're going to remember Clowney. Because, uh, you know, they still call him a bust, but he made a few Pro Bowls and stuff right now. Mm-hmm. So, he's having – see, for them, they expected him to be kind of like a guy that was going to be wrecking the league and stuff because of that one play. But he's having a he's having a above-average NFL career. Mm-hmm. But, you know, yeah. he'll never he'll – ne- yeah, he'll never uh, – I guess he'll never live up to the what they wanted him to be. You know, like 15 sacks a game, you know, mm-hmm. da, 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 you know, he was the craziest guy ever. Living up to the first pick in the draft is you know, if they're like Mario like Mario Edwards. Mm-hmm. Mario oh, yeah. El- oh yeah. Am I talking Mario I'm saying his name right, right? Mm-hmm. Like Mario yeah, yeah. he was the first pick, you know, you gotta you gotta come you gotta come with it. That first pick and a joke. <laughs> Courtney Brown, like Courtney Brown, uh, a lot of those guys, they they, they ain't bust, but they just they it's made, but you know, injuries, yeah, injuries, exactly, injuries and all kind of stuff, and there are a lot of stuff that come with football that people don't understand, and then ha- always have to be in the media, and you know, everybody second guessing your judgment. Everybody ain't fit for that. That's why I kind of mm-hmm. try to stay in the media as much as I could. 
No doubt. And just kind of going back to what you said earlier, John, I 100% agree with you. And one reason I, I love doing what I do with the Spurs Up show, just because, you know, we're able to get a lot of different guys on from a lot of different eras and kind of highlight, I don't want to say the forgotten game, you know, Gamecocks have maybe forgotten, but maybe Gamecocks that people have forgotten just how great they were, you know, like, like saying, including yourself. So I, I was going to ask you, because I 100% agree with you, because I, I truly do believe you can't move forward without recognizing, you know, where you came from and the you know, there wouldn't be a Jadavion Clowney without a, without a, without a John Abraham or, you know, without people in the past like yourself. But how do you feel that Will Muschamp is – because I feel like he's tried to make that better, obviously, as far as inviting former players back on campus, doing the alumni spring games and getting the older, you know, players from past generations more involved. How do you feel like Will Muschamp is addressing those concerns that you were talking about? I think he's doing good, but I think also – at every game, he should have one guy introduced. Every home game, like, you know, because every time I see other people's teams, I see people on the sideline. Like, you don't see us, like, I'm not knocking him, though, because if that's not exactly what he wants, you know, some coaches aren't like that. But I think if he was like, all right, well, John, you know, uh, are you free this week? Well, you, Turo, y'all come and y'all be our guys on the sideline this week. All right, well, Ray Green, how you doing? I want y'all to come be on the sideline because I, I love when I see like teammates on the sideline. I see old guys. Like I be watching like Alabama, they always have they ex guy. Even if you play when Alabama wasn't winning national championships, you always see or, you know, you always see a guy out of coaching for them on the sideline, just like hanging with the guys, getting to know them. And I think that would help, you know, just like just to bring better recruits too. Like I would come to every game if they ask if I'm free. But you know, you know, just cause coming to the spring game is cool, but that's not like seeing people on TV like, damn, is that so-and-so, like, is that Sterling Sharp on the sideline? Is that is that, is that Alshon Jeffries on the sideline of the game? You know, like, having him, like, Alshon, like, Dante Robinson, who's retired. Uh, but we got we got a lot of people, just people on the sideline. I'm not just talking about just ex-NFL players. I'm talking about ex-guys that play. Like, you know, Lattimore is always there because he kind of worked with the facility. Mm-hmm. But not saying people tired of seeing him, but we've seen – we know we know he's going to be there. But, like, you know, I kind of follow – you know, everybody don't follow. Like, some people follow defense. Like, you know, oh, where's the old boy, the cornerback used to play? Yeah, how's he doing? I just want to steal him at a game or something. You know, just bring people back on the sideline, you know, because uh, I tried to get to a game one time, and the line was so long getting it for players that I was just like – and a lot of the players, coaches, a lot of them had, but they had their players with them, so it wasn't really like a – and I actually addressed them this one time. I said, what you going to do for, like, are you going to get a card or something for identification for people trying to get in the game? So if we're players, we can just come straight to the locker room and, like, get in there. You know, we won't – you know, mm-hmm. I mean, but just like have a weekend or have a week. But just like, look, I have five players come this week and just give them a call, see if they can make it. They can't make it. Just have somebody that's strictly their job to have the five players. And like, like even like come and say, hey, we got John Abraham. We got Turo Freeman. We got, uh, I don't know, we got so-and-so, like Boo Williams of Town. These are five players. Just give me the sideline. They're our honorary uh, coaches for the day. So, y'all, hey, hey. And I think that'll bring a lot of people. Like, oh, I remember him. Or, like, you know, we got, like, Cuddy Abrams. We got um, we got a lot of guys from the past that I know that were, like, Andre, where I played with. We got a lot of guys. Andre, often, he's a he, – he, he, he do, like, military. But now he worked with a lot of football kids. I know he'll love to come. He's right in Atlanta. But just have, like, five players every mm-hmm. every game. Ex-players. I mean, just go down the list. It don't got to be, like, no – like, Bob Whitfield. I know he'll love to come. Um. It's just a lot like Paul Paul Beckles. He do like a um, training facility right there in Columbia. Mm-hmm. Like have those guys come. Like have Paul. Like we, I got take a few to come. 
come on out here and just, you know, because he, he got a workout facility right there. A lot of guys don't know where to work out besides um, sometimes you don't want to work out. Um, so once you leave, you don't want to have to come back to the campus to work out. Mm-hmm. Paul has two uh, workout places, one in Armour and one downtown right there on Hugo. But sometimes guys do go out and drink. They might want to go out to a place they can go hang and, like, get a little nice workout in and don't want to come to campus and show the guys they might have went out or, you know, just stuff like that. And, you know, Paul has a place they can come and relax, you know, just – you know, you don't want to go in there and have the kids and get you all the time. You don't want to have to, like, sit there and talk to the kids, you know. So I think that would be good, like, just to have, like, maybe, like, five players, maybe three. You're just three mm-hmm. people on the sideline, just old players. You know, like, you got people that see that. We have a little spring game that a lot of old guys come to. You know, they'll come. But, I mean, have the old guys come and, you know, sit on the sideline. Even if, even if you have, like, a – see, me personally, I would have a small little place, a little section for old mm-hmm. players. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll try to invite five every week, and they can just sit there and watch the game, the older players or something like that. You know, just for me personally. That's what yeah. I would do. I, I mean, I 100% yeah. agree with you because, like, uh, you know, like I said, I, I, I truly it, it, believe – It's easier to, yeah, to say than it is to do sometimes. But, you know, that's what I – you know, so. But that's yeah, what well, I personally say. Well, hopefully the powers of be that – or powers of be that can make that happen will listen to this podcast and hear that. Because I 100% agree with you. I just think recognizing the people that help build the program to the point it is, I mean, the program wouldn't – exist or be here today with you know it wouldn't be at the place it is today without the people that came before i truly 100 percent believe that and you're definitely without a doubt one of those people um john before i let you go i know i've kept you for a while but obviously we're a gamecocks podcast what would you say if you had to pick um maybe one of your favorite memories just as a gamecock just walking through the smoke every time we walk through the smoke like i i promise you, i can remember and that's why that's why i love atlanta too because you know we had the smoke also just hearing the music come on, it, I think that was the closest I, I ever got to my teammates. All of us, it didn't matter who it was. I mean, we had racist people. We had people that didn't like each other. And everybody, once we got in that tunnel together, and like, you know, back in the day, we, you know, everybody didn't, everybody didn't like each other. You know, we had people coming from different, you know, people from from West Coast, from East Coast, people that, you know, we. I mean, the races on both sides, black people didn't like white people, white people didn't like black people. We had people that didn't like certain type of music, didn't like this. But once we got in that tunnel, we didn't care who was beside you, man. All of us used to hug, all of us get around. So that's right. Because in the locker room, our locker room was segregated sometimes, you know, just because some people didn't like certain music or, you know, it, you know what I mean? Or some people didn't like this kind of politician or this, this, this. But once we got in, that, once we got in there, I promise you, once we got on that little black hood and they get ready to blow that smoke, I don't care who beside you. You're getting hugs, high fives and everything. So that's my biggest memory because that was, that was the closest we always used to be. Like, I, I promise you, like, Pretty much all of us now that I play with, we always talk. Even the people that we had problems with or we wouldn't speak to each other then, like now nah, all is good. And I think us getting that tone together right before we had to go to fight for another team and really get to know each other, that's when we all got closer. So that's my biggest memory, just getting I, – I can never remember a bad moment. And I don't care what the team was, uh, who I was beside, uh, when I was coming out, whether my name was called, who name was called. But whenever we got in there, whether it was I uh, – White guy, black guy, Spanish, English, or whoever's in there, we was family. So that's my that's my best memory of uh, being a game cop. That's absolutely awesome. Well, John, I appreciate you taking the time, man. If nothing else, let's, would love to. Obviously, would love to see you on the sidelines at a South Carolina game. But if nothing else, we'll obviously be at every single game at Williams Bryce. We'll have a tailgate. Would love for you to come by, talk some shop, talk some ball. Maybe we can do this again, record it, have a good old time out at uh, out at Williams Bryce, man. But appreciate you taking the time, John. Absolute pleasure to speak with you and. Uh, yeah, like I said, let's do it again sometime, without a doubt. Yeah, you got my number, so you give me a call anytime. Sounds great. So for John Abraham, I'm Chris Phillips. We appreciate you guys tuning in, and we'll catch you next week on another episode of the Spurs Up Show.